Injustice that is invisible inevitably becomes tolerable. But injustice that is made visible inevitably becomes intolerable. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people then can join the pro-life movement to save I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Those opening words are the words of Greg Cunningham of the Center for Bioethical Reform as he shows that for injustice to be ended, it must be exposed. And that's what we're going to talk about on the program today. Thank you so much for joining everyone and welcome once again to the Pro-Life Guys. This is episode number three. My name is Peter Boss. I'm the host of the show. I've been with you for the first two episodes and I hope to continue to be with you as time goes on. And once again, I am joined in studio with... My main man, my co-host, my pro-life mentor, my colleague, and my friend, Cameron Cote. Cam, welcome back to the show. Oh, good to be here. I know you've been working hard after these first two episodes to get rid of me, but I am still back. I am still your co-host. I am fired up to be talking with a good friend, a great leader, a handsome man, and a guy that's going to illuminate a lot of stuff about CCBR, CCBR strategy, why we use pictures in the pro-life movement, the power of images and how they can be incredibly, incredibly useful in transforming culture. Cam, I I have not tried. I I don't know why you would suggest that I would try to get rid of the expert of the show. Um, Not only am I honored to do this this podcast with you, but I'm also thankful that uh, someone as wise and as knowledgeable as you are are able to come by my side and and, uh, join this journey. Well, what we're going to talk about today is how we fight abortion, a strategy that we use to fight abortion. Because a a question that we've had before, uh, we've had asked before by pro-lifers is, does it matter how we fight against abortion or is it just good that we fight against abortion? Uh, And if it is important, then what way is the best way? And today we're joined to have this conversation by uh, our colleague, Jonathan Van Maren. So I, I guess I'll just go ahead and introduce John then? Oh, whoa, brutal. I, I should totally get to, to to introduce him. Usually what we would do would be a thumb wrestle to see who gets to introduce the, the guest, but we can't do that right now. And so I think I should get to to introduce wait, Jonathan wait, wait, wait. because not only do I have all four of Jonathan's books that he's authored, but each and every one of them are signed by the man himself. And so I'm pretty sure that I should get to introduce him. Well, that, that, you know, that, that sounds great and all, but... 
Uh, I think I can one-up you with the fact that I'm actually sitting in the man's studio as we speak. I, uh, I think that's fantastic. I'm in his studio. I'm, I'm, I'm using his equipment. I think that's fantastic that you bumped him into your office that's full of like dirty lemons and Tupperware's full of cashews and you're sniping his good equipment and everything. But I'm going to one-up you again because I am Jonathan's 12th best friend. And if you need proof of that, I signed Jonathan's books as his 12th best friend. And so I don't know if you can top that, Peter. No, I, I can top that. I, it's actually, so when I meet new people and, and we're talking to, about the pro-life issue and stuff, one of the ways that I gain credibility in people's eyes is, is I just tell them, you know, I have lived with Jonathan for eight months. Uh, we lived in the same home. We, we had conversations all the time. That's kind of my claim to fame in the pro-life movement, really. So I, I think, see if you can top that, Cam. No, I definitely can't top that. Definitely can't top that. Okay, you get to introduce him. All right. Well, today on the program, we have Jonathan Van Maren, Communications Director at CCBR. He's an author of several books, including his recent one, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. He's written The Culture War. He's co-authored A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide. And he wrote one that is applicable to today's conversation, which is Seeing is Believing, Why Our Culture Must Face the Victims of Abortion. He's a blogger. You can find him at thebridgehead.ca, among some other places. He is uh, a speaker, a pro-life speaker. Not only does he speak across the country, but uh, across North America. Um, He's done presentations in Europe and, and many other places. He has played a key role in drafting CCBR's initial End the Killing Plan and currently um, plays a key role in seeing the end the killing plan um, played out uh, as we work with all of our teams across the country to protect and defend preborn children. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. Welcome to the podcast. Well, that was long and painful, but it's good to be with you. Yeah, it's it's so great to have you. I think to, to kick things off, um, one of the things we'd like to know is Tell us a little bit about your first involvement with CCBR. How did you get involved in the movement? How did you hear about CCBR and, uh, and get involved with the organization? Well, I got involved with CCBR at first, actually, by joining a campus group at Simon Fraser University. I believe Cam was uh, part of the UVic uh, Students for Life Club around the same time I was uh, president of uh, SFU Students for Life. And one of the things we did at that time was we hosted an abortion debate on campus with a philosophy PhD student. Uh, He was referred to as the goldfish guy because he always said that fetuses and goldfish were similar. And Joe Jaruba came to campus uh, to debate him. And then shortly afterwards, we had Stephanie Gray, uh, who is the other co-founder of CCBR, come on campus for a talk called Echoes of the Holocaust, discussing um, how the injustice of abortion was similar to other historical injustices. And uh, while Stephanie was on campus, she invited me to go to the very first Florida Genocide Awareness Project, which many of our listeners will know is now the Abortion Awareness Project. We no longer display the images alongside photographs of other historical injustices for reasons we might get into later. And it was honestly that first experience that that really uh, made me passionate about the use of abortion victim photography because I got to see how it worked. Uh, It was real practical conversations. And I realized that when you're talking uh, about abortion with a pro-choice person, it's often really tough to make headway. When you're standing in front of an image of an aborted child or holding a sign of an aborted baby or handing out a postcard or you've got a pamphlet on you, half the job is done for you 
uh, right off the bat. To uh, quote the man you quoted at the beginning, and I'm sure will be quoted again by the end of the podcast, Greg Cunningham, he said, uh, when you show people what abortion looks like, abortion protests itself. And so my first experience with CCBR was engaging with their projects, and it was that experience that persuaded me that these, these tactics were effective. I think that's awesome, Jonathan. I'm so glad that you made the cut for that first gap experience. I remember Stephanie Gray came to my campus in 2009 and I was like major fanboy over her. She rocked our worlds at UVic and I applied to Florida and I did not make the cut that first year. And so I heard all of these incredible stories about Florida, about this guy um, from Simon Fraser who went down there and was this mysterious guy that uh, none of the people from UVic quite understood. And yeah, I got to make years and I've literally never heard the story before. Oh, oh, it's, it's a good story. And so they, they met Jonathan at the airport. He was outside, um, enjoying, hopefully there's no minors, um, on this podcast, but he was smoking a cigarette and they just thought that he was the coolest guy ever because he was wearing a leather jacket and smoking a cigarette outside the airport. And they got to know him over that first week of gap. I got to know you 2011. Round two of Gap, you got the experience under your belt. I came out as a new, new guy there, um, helping set up the display and all that kind of stuff. That's sweet. That, that first experience, like you said, it, um, motion victim photography does at least half of the work itself. right? I, I shared a, a story. I think I shared a first episode about how, you know, what I, uh, at that first Gap display, actually, I, I was talking to this guy. We were a long ways away from the display. I think I walked somebody to class. And, and I picked this guy up. He was probably like, I don't know, 200 yards, 500 yards, something away from the display. So we couldn't actually see the pictures. And I talked to him for like 45 minutes and was not getting through at all. And finally, I walked him over to the pictures. And I kept walking and walking. He, suddenly, he wasn't beside me anymore. And I turned back and, and I looked at the guy. And, and he was just gawking at the images. Like, how? why did he just say this? Why didn't you just say that abortion killed a human? I, I told him, dude, I, I've been talking to you for 45 minutes trying to con- convey that point. And the pictures did that instantly. And so I think that that really, yeah, that, that first gap experience for me was very, very similar and really sealing the deal of the effectiveness of images. That's great. Thanks for sharing, Jonathan. So you, you did gap. You were a volunteer at that point, um, but you're on staff now. So tell us a little bit about how... Uh, you went from being a a, a, a president of a pro life club, uh, someone who was a volunteer for CCBR, to someone who was uh, became staff at CCBR, someone who joined the team to work full time to fight pre, uh, fight abortion. Yeah, I don't think anybody really plans on a pro life career, like especially not back then, because we didn't we didn't have a national strategy at the time. Like myself and a couple of other pro lifers, one of whom was the head of the UBC pro life club. Um, we would go out and protest pretty much every uh, abortion event with just like three or four choice chain signs. Half the time it was like two signs. So if Joyce Arthur of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada was holding a film screening, we would faithfully be there even in October all bundled up with our giant signs just at the door just so everybody would know what was going on inside. Uh, and then I was I had applied for, for three master's programs. One was at the University of Jerusalem because I worked with a bunch of, uh, of Jewish organizations on campus. Um, like Hillel and Benign Breath. The other one was I actually got asked to stay on at Simon Fraser University and do my master's in history there. And then the third one was I was considering doing a master's uh, of apologetics at Biola because I was really enjoying 
uh, interacting with people and actually making a difference uh, with the beliefs that I had. It's one of the reasons I, I, I actually preferred pro-life activism to campus politics is because we're doing campus politics makes you a terrible person because the, you're, the entire point of campus politics is to totally destroy the person that you're running against or that the, your preferred candidate is running against. And we got really good at that, uh, but it also made us awful. Um, and when I experienced pro-life activism for the first time, I'm like, it actually feels a lot better uh, to do something that I know is worthwhile and I know is making the world a better place and and you know it's having a genuine impact uh, than the sort of junky, hateful energy you get when you watch the person that you really don't like go down in flames. That said, uh, when Natalie Balking of the uh, SFSS lost her election after calling us our pro-life group, the, the Hitler Youth in the newspaper, that was a pretty good day. Um, regardless of, of, of the glee might've been a little bit um, unedifying, but it was very enjoyable. So I was kind of like grappling with, with which career path to take. And then Stephanie Gray phoned me in the fall of 2010 and said, at CCBR, we want to work on a national plan, the end the killing plan, as it would be later be called. And we, we basically want to hire a few people to come and help work on this, on this national strategy. And are you interested? And so I was, um, it was a lot harder to join the pro-life movement then because we had no track record. So to, to even to fundraise, you would go to people and are like, well, um, can you uh, support my salary so that I can go and work for an organization that's going to work on a plan that we don't have yet? But I promise that when we have it, it'll be really good. Um, we had no track record to work from at the time, um, but I, I decided to do it anyway. So I got hired in, in fall of 2010. And I went on staff in, in January of 2011. At the time I came on staff, there were five of us total. Um, and by the end of the year, there was quite a few more. Uh, there were, we, had, we had a bunch of interns. A few of them stayed on. Um, and so, yeah, I started off in January uh, with five of us. And then we started working on the, the End the Killing Plan throughout that whole year. And especially throughout that whole summer where we were, we were like, we pulled a few all-nighters actually, just working through the plans, looking at, what other organizations had done, because of obviously CCBR is not the first organization to have, have used abortion victim photography, although at the time we were still calling it graphic images. Uh, the, the term abortion victim photography was actually coined by Dr. Monica Miller, one of the pro-life pioneers uh, from, from Michigan. And she actually uh, put forward that term as a better and more descriptive term at a conference two years later in Chicago uh, and it's sort of a summit of all the different groups that use abortion victim photography. And so we, we looked at what the Center for Bioethical Reform did. Greg Cunningham had worked a lot with graphic images and, and, and AVP, and he had kind of pioneered a lot of the historical research behind it. But we, we added substantially to that research. He did a lot of the cutting edge stuff, but we did a lot of, of other research. And then it was basically looking at, okay, right now we're, you know, five people, half a dozen people in one office in Calgary, if we're going to have a national strategy, how do we actually start to expand across Canada? And one of the, uh, the important things to note, and maybe I'm making this excuse because obviously we made a lot of mistakes, is that uh, like there was no model for us to work from, no Canadian model at all. It was just a few of us, most of us fresh out of university, who had a plan to have a plan, and we wanted to do it cross-country. And so we... like. The, the rate at which CCBR expanded is crazy to me in retrospect, because I still can't believe that it lasted, considering the fact that we did stuff in the early years that shouldn't have worked um, in terms of we stretched our finances to the very max. Uh, we were willing to take risks because we knew we needed to to expand that we wouldn't have uh, in later years. 
But by uh, by the end of 2011, the plan was sort of put together. Uh, one of the key parts of the plan was obviously opening up a wing in, in the GTA so that we would have one wing in the west based out of Calgary, one wing in the east based out of the greater Toronto area where 9 million of Canada's 34 million people are. And then it was just about working on projects based on the fact that abortion victim photography changes minds and then testing them, changing them constantly as we as we realized what worked and what didn't, trying to make projects constantly more effective. We committed to running polling very early on, uh, right in, in, the, in the strategy document. You won't find this online, but it's cool if everybody knows this. Is just the fact that we actually committed to ensuring we pulled our work to make sure that we were never doing what we were doing because we had done it last year. Um, because one of the things that's really important is that the pro-life movement should have movement. It shouldn't become an institution because we exist to reach a destination and then to disperse. And so we were really focused on ensuring that we didn't sort of fall into a rut where, well, we we did choice chain last year, and so we're going to do choice chain this year. It was like, no, we're gonna we're gonna expose people to the truth about abortion, and then we're going to hire polling agencies, we're going to test their impact, and then in with all that data, we're not only going to be able to determine our impact, but we're going to work on ways of making it better. Um, because abortion victim photography is a tool, and tools can be used less effectively, more effectively, or detrimentally. I do think abortion victim photography can be misused. So I think I think some of the best work CCBR has done uh, that's also been utilized now by the international pro-life movement in, in half a dozen countries at my last count is we have really, I think, I, I won't say perfected because we're always improving, but I think we've really come up with creative ways of utilizing the tool of abortion victim photography, fusing that with conversational apologetics and really come up, coming up with what I consider at this stage to be one of the best ways to shift hearts and minds in the shortest amount of time that I've ever seen. I'm obviously biased, but I'm also evidence-based. And that was, that was the whole point of the end the killing plan too, is it would be very, very evidence-based. Cool. So before I dive into that, that question of developing that document, the end the killing plan that really inspired me to get involved with CCBR, I got to ask, so coming out of university, you've got these master's programs lined up. How thrilled were your friends and probably more important, your, your family, that you were going to put that on the side and pursue pro-life work? Like, like, were they just like jumping for joy that you picked this reliable, um, very well-established career plan or, or how did they respond to that? <laughs> well, we're going to, we'll just jump right into the deep end, I guess. Um, no, like to be honest, I think like my, my parents knew me well enough that they did not try to discourage me all that much. My dad asked me a lot of very reasonable probing questions which uh, now that I have my own kids seem even more reasonable than they did at the time. Things like, yeah, but what if you have to support a family or, you know, well, there, and there was so much uncertainty, like looking back, especially considering the fact that we didn't even have a plan when I took the job. Like it was, I was hired to help work on the plan. I totally understand why people thought it might be slightly crazy to be throwing away what is a very obvious career path over and against what was not at all a guarantee and wasn't even two years later. Um, but at the same time, uh, there was a lot of people who, and this will not surprise either you or Peter, were just kind of like, oh yeah, that it totally makes sense that Jonathan would end up doing something like that. I think one of my aunts referred to me as, a, um, as an activist in search of a cause, um, which I wouldn't have seen myself ex precisely that way, but she's known me since I was, well, I was very little. Uh, and, 
I, because I had worked on a bunch of different campaigns prior to getting involved in the pro-life movement. But I do think that, I think that um, I'm uniquely grateful for the fact that all of my skills ended up working perfectly in the pro-life context. So I was hired to work on pro-life strategy, which is primarily rooted in historical injustice uh, and historical social reform. And my degree was in history. So much of what I learned in university was directly applicable to the job that I took in January of 2011. And one interesting uh, side note, and you can talk about this later, Cam, is when we launched the new abortion caravan in, in 2012, the idea for that came from the fact that in my in my history courses at SFU, uh, Canadian history prof after Canadian history prof would ram the story of this wonderful, liberating feminist caravan that launched the abortion rights movement in Canada down all of our throats. And so already in third year university, I had this idea, if I could convince a pro-life group to redo the abortion caravan, to sort of like hijack the sacred cow and reverse the intent and instead launch a, a movement of young people dedicated to reversing what the first one did, that would be just amazing. It was the first thing I pitched uh, to Stephanie and Jojo when I came on uh, at CCBR. And so I have my SFU history professors to thank for planting that idea in my head. And so I would say people were very cautious when I took the job. They asked me questions uh, that were very reasonable questions. I'm sure you guys can relate. When you first realize what abortion is, um, you are unreasonably passionate. And, and what I mean by that is that you... You can't totally understand why nobody else do, doesn't think about the fact that babies are getting killed all day long. Like I remember the first time I saw an abortion video, it was second, uh, first or second year university at the University of the Fraser Valley before I went to SFU. And I watched a video of a baby getting pulled apart with metal tools. And it, it was like seared into my brain. I didn't shut up about abortion for months because I just couldn't believe this was happening. I'm like, this is happening 300 times a day in Canada. And there you are, you know, eating your stupid supper, ignoring the fact that babies are dying. This is so upsetting, right? Why aren't we all doing more? Uh, and and, and for, I think for people, uh, especially the parents and siblings of people who first get involved in the pro-life movement, I think we all look a bit nuts at first because you've sort of like had your eyes open to this thing that's happening and you're suddenly willing to throw away all these other things you were working on in order to pursue ending that injustice. And I, I've only been able to understand what I must have looked like in retrospect. And then also as people come and work for CCBR and go through our internship programs, watching them all go through the same thing, but like actually seeing it happen rather than experiencing it myself has been very enlightening. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful because my family was extremely supportive of me doing pro-life work. And I know a lot of people who got, who came on in the first three years did not have family support at all. And that made it very difficult. So I'm one of, I'm one of the objectively fortunate members of staff and that my family asked very intelligent questions, but they never discouraged me from, you know, moving to another province and not doing my master's degree and working for an organization with a plan that had yet to be determined. Boom. And, and I think that's awesome. And, and honestly, myself and Peter, I, I, I don't know about the case for you, but I, I had that same degree of support. A lot of questions, a lot of concern as to whether they'd be getting a, a phone call from some prison um, at some point or regularly because of my work. Um, but I think that's awesome, and especially for current pro-life activists to know, because I think that people like you really blaze the trail and legitimize the idea of working full-time in the movement. Like you said, there were five people working for CCBR at that point. I'm sure that there's probably less than 50 people nationwide working for any pro-life organization, let alone uh, an extremely 
forthcoming, very active, very engaging organization like CCBR. And yet, I mean, summer after summer, we're seeing like 50 people every summer now come on full time for our internship programs. We have dozens of people who have come through the CCBR staff team um, with with optimistic goals over the next five years of hiring dozens of more people. And sometimes I, I feel like people really need to realize just how much of a, a step of faith that was right at the beginning of your involvement, that this is something that not a whole lot of people are doing, but absolutely needs to be done. I'll never forget. I, I don't know um, if, if Greg Cunningham ever used the, the words on you. I remember he was speaking during my internship 2012. We'll talk a little bit about the new abortion caravan that happened during my internship in 2012. But using those powerful words of there are more people working full-time in this nation to kill babies than there are working full-time to save babies. And that was a reality. That was a reality. Um, I, I don't know where the statistics are at right now. I don't know if we have overtaken the number of people that are working full-time explicitly to kill babies or not. But we're, we're sure getting a whole lot closer. Yeah, and actually, another another quote he said in the same in the same paragraph was he said most of us do just enough to solve the conscience and not enough to end the killing. That one hit me harder. Yeah, totally. And and so to probably dive into that, you probably, ET- probably be quoting Greg Cunningham all the way through. <laughs> oh, oh, for for good reason. I mean, the guy's a legend. He's been active in this movement for, I mean, since since before Peter was born. Actually, I'm pretty sure. So that's pretty legendary. To dive a little bit into the ETK plan, uh, Peter, I'm sure you got a bunch of questions lined up, but I I think it's really important because for me, uh, the abortion victim photography really did away with rhetoric. Like I, I would never confess to be a, a big political guy. I'm not a huge guy when it comes to arguing or trying to logic my way through stuff. And so abortion victim photography was super handy for me because it, for me, it, it seemed to cut through a lot of that rhetoric that seemed to cloud the entire conversation around abortion. Do you think that's one of the key reasons why this is one of our two-pronged approach for transforming the entire nation? Well, absolutely. So there's there's a couple of things to say in response to that. First, one of CCBR's principles in terms of strategy is show, not tell. So rather than arguing, you know, abortion is murder, we show people what abortion actually looks like and they can reach that conclusion very quickly themselves just by seeing what abortion actually looks like. A second point is that we live in an extraordinarily visual culture. Now, people have always been visual, um, but our culture today is more visual than any civilization in human history. So even when you're working through the different social reform movements that CCBR's tactics are, are, are based on or rooted in. So going back to the, the abolitionist movement of the, of the uh, late 1800s, or sorry, early, uh, early 1800s, William Wilberforce showing all of the imagery, moving on to the Congo reform movement, the pictures of the brutal maltreatment of, of the Congolese people under the King Leopold uh, Belgian regime, the civil rights movement with photographs of, of Emmett Till and his open casket, people getting beaten to their knees on the streets. Those cultures were shocked by pictures and now we have an even more visual culture. And I ha- I've had people say to me, well, Jonathan, there's so many graphic things around now. Uh, you know, like there's posters for, you know, The Walking Dead with gruesome zombies in the mall. So like, it's harder to reach people with imagery. And that's both true and proves our point is that today, if you want to get into the argument, your, your visuals have to be so compelling, they cut through the noise, right? A generation of people who were weaned on horror movies are going to be pretty hard to shock. But as both you and Peter can attest, what does it is a picture of a dead baby. And that's because there's something instinctive in us that still recoils 
at that violation of innocence. It's, it's much easier for us to see a picture of a dead adult than a dead child. And one of the reasons for that is there's the perception that that adult at least maybe had a chance to defend him or herself. Whereas when it's a child, the circumstances are obvious. Something was done to this little boy, this little girl. And their abortion victim photography, despite all of the graphic imagery that bombards our culture from every angle, is still incredibly effective at grabbing and holding people's attention. And that's because, again, abortion protests itself. When people look at an image, they know that what they're looking at is an image of a baby who has been killed. And interestingly enough, even those people who call our pictures out as being fake, like Joyce Arthur of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, my favorite nemesis, because she has an obsession with CCBR. She really hates us, and that's because she knows that we're very effective. But she'll frequently be like, these images are fake. Abortion doesn't look like that. Well, there's an implicit admission in, in what she's saying, because the implicit admission is that if abortion did look like that, wow, that would be awful, right? Now, I'm, I'm sure she'd find a way to, to attempt to defend it, uh, but when she's saying, oh, the images are fake, She's saying that because she realizes they're having an impact on people, right? One of the things she likes to say to the Toronto Star or the CBC whenever they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel and they need to comment from somebody who doesn't know what she's talking about, uh, they'll call her and ask what she thinks of our tactics, knowing, of course, what she's going to say already. And she'll say, yeah, well, they just turn people off. And so what they're doing is actually helping me in making Canada a more pro-choice country. And in the very next breath, she'll be like, and we should also make all of these, these images illegal. It's like, wait a second, I thought... You just said we were doing your job, right? You should be one of our top donors since we are helping the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada make Canada a more pro-choice country, but we should be banned from helping you in that mission, right? It makes no sense whatsoever because at the end of the day, everybody in this country has seen at some point or another a sonogram, an ultrasound, a picture of a baby in the womb from you know the front cover of the 1965 Life magazine all the way through to a very recent issue of Time magazine and when people say that's not what abortion looks like, all we really have to do is ask them to imagine the last photograph, ultrasound, sonogram of a baby in the womb and say, what do you think that baby would look like once the abortionist got through with it? And then the, the, the abortion victim photography gets produced in their own imagination because they can't put those two things together. Jonathan, you had these conversations uh, with the team at CCBR, you pulled the all-nighters, you talked about the strategy, you used your history degree uh, and the historical examples that you knew of and that you had studied to draft this plan. And then in 2012, you launched this plan. You mentioned you wanted to do a new abortion caravan, uh, which Cam referenced certainly did happen during the internship in 2012. Could you tell us a little bit about the new abortion caravan, um, how you planned that, what you did, and some of the memories you had um, launching this massive end the killing plan that Canada hadn't seen before uh, across the country. Yeah, so like a little bit of historical context, as I mentioned earlier, I got the idea from um, some of my Canadian history profs at Simon Fraser University. Uh, and the, the original abortion caravan was launched in 1970 from Simon Fraser University, which is why the SFU profs were so obsessed with talking about it. And then they, their formal launch was from the Vancouver Art Gallery. And then they went all the way across the country to Ottawa where they dumped a black coffin full of like bleach and coat hangers and other things used in illegal at-home abortion uh, on the lawn of the prime minister who was at that point uh, Pierre Trudeau. Then they, they chained themselves uh, to the railings in parliament and shut down the House of Commons for the very first time. Now on the way there, uh, they hosted these sort of like really weird guerrilla plays 
where where they would sh- like act out abortions and it was really gruesome and horrible and awful. And the whole point was to shock people into realizing that, hey, this is happening and it should happen more safely because it's going to happen anyway. And they were they were assisted enormously by by uh, institutions like the United Church of Canada, otherwise known as the NDP at prayer. And uh, and and they were assisted by a lot of the, the like the liberal institutions all the way across. And the reason that the caravan is so uh, significant in retrospect is because it's seen as sort of the launch pad for the Canadian abortion rights movement. Abortion had been decriminalized in 1969, 1970. You have what were referred to as the furious women heading all the way across the country uh, and then shutting down Parliament. And then 18 years later, uh, in the 1988 Morgan Dollar decision, you have. Uh, Henry Morgenthaler's campaign of civil disobedience following the caravan, resulting in a ruling that throws out all of, all of Canada's abortion law. So basically what we were going to do is we needed a way to launch this new national plan. And the best way to launch a national plan is to go all the way across the nation. So we retraced the steps of the, the 1970 abortion caravan, but we call it the new abortion caravan, which had a couple of, there was a couple of primary reasons. Uh, one, obviously, I really wanted to repeat and hijack uh, the the original abortion caravan to by hijacking their sacred cow we would force engagement with the abortion activists they would be forced to recognize uh, what we were up to and to respond to what we were up to my private history nerd hope was that what would end up happening was whenever they ha- referred to the abortion caravan they would have to s- distinguish between the two that would be amazing that whenever they talked about their favorite thing they would have to talk about their least favorite thing that being us and CCBR. And so we actually launched from the Vancouver Art Gallery. It was pretty crazy. Um, we had all sorts of uh, protesters out. We had the, the truck got barricaded in front of like, I think it was the office of the CBC or the or CTV, one of one of the two uh, main broadcasters. The mirror of our truck got smashed by a dude with a bike lock. But we gave all these speeches from the, the front steps of the Art Gallery. It was awesome. Dr. Alexander Moans, who later became the, well, it's currently the the, uh, the head of the um, political science department, the chair of the political science department at SFU gave a speech. IMC of the event, Stephanie spoke. Uh, Ruth Shaw, who's now um, at NCLN, gave a little speech. Mike Shuden, who's at uh, ARPA Canada, We Need a Law, gave a speech. And after the speeches, we just started winding our way all the way across the country. And we had a total media blackout at first. Um, and it was crazy because they showed up, reporters showed up to the art gallery because it, it had all the makings of a good story, right? It had angry abortion activists screaming and, and, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. It had like, you know, there's these, these pictures of aborted babies that were backdropping uh, a whole group of young people giving speeches about how they were going to redo the abortion caravan. And the opening national anthem uh, was sung by the guy who did the songs for the Vancouver Canucks. I couldn't care less about pro sports. So I forget who it was, but uh, Mark Donnelly, I think it was actually, yeah, that, that's who it was. I was going to say any sports details you can refer to Cam for. Um, and so the, the Globe and Mail actually showed up, did like a 20-minute interview with, with Stephanie, and talked to a few of us, uh, and then no story came out. And our joke was that they, they always show up at a pro-life event hoping to catch the pro-lifers with their pants down, but then they arrived at, at, the, at the art gallery, and a lot of the pro-choice activists literally had their pants off, so they decided to just cancel the whole story. They didn't run a piece. But then the embargo broke in Kelowna. When we got to Kelowna, and like this was my first favorite moment. It was my history nerd moment because Margot Dunn, one of the original 17 women on the 1970 abortion caravan, uh, did an interview with CBC where she called our new abortion caravan sacrilege, which was basically like all of my dreams for the caravan came true in a single CBC interview, which is the strangest sentence I thought I'd ever say. 
it was it was just phenomenal. And the funny thing is because they broke the story and they were talking about you know this 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 crazy caravan that was committing sacrilege against one of the abortion rights sacred cows. We got retroactive coverage. Suddenly the Vancouver papers were like, oh yeah, no, they were here too a few days ago, and it, then they did a story. Uh, and so from Kelowna onwards, we had protests everywhere we went nonstop. It, it didn't quit all the way across. I'm trying to think of which which event was craziest because there was tons of protesters out in Winnipeg. Well, the protesters were everywhere. I think the craziest protest was probably, uh, this was great for me, the one in London, um, which is the first time my parents had ever come to any pro-life presentation I'd given because we've been living in different provinces, right? So we get to London and I, I show up and one of our security cars, because we used to drive these like ex-cop cars behind our trucks just to deter people from vandalism. And uh, I'm kind of like winding my way through this angry, screaming crowd. There was uh, they, like the MP, local MP, Irene Matheson of the NDP was screaming. You had Jim Kennedy of the, of the Canadian Auto Workers Union. There was a protest against our caravan in Windsor. and We didn't even stop there. Um, but like it was a whole mob. And then the Occupy movement was still a thing. Um, except that in Canada, you don't need cops to take care of Occupy. You just had winter. But they showed up for our caravan again after uh, after crawling back uh, to their parents' basements after, after the first wave. And uh, I, I walked through this crowd, and I realized halfway when I'm through, there's like a bunch of people who are naked because that is considered a valid form of protest on their side. Um, happens more often than you think. But I come out the other side, and I see my parents and my little sister standing by the door of the of the hall with these like huge eyes looking at me and I'm like, Oh, this is my job now. Um, it was, it was the weirdest, it was the weirdest thing ever because then they attacked the truck on the street. They actually were in, in the strangest piece of symbolism I've ever seen. Uh, they barricaded the truck in front of the hall. And then one of the abortion protesters started clawing at it with a coat hanger, which is just like, it was a bit too on the nose. I thought, um, interestingly on that note, we actually met in Winnipeg. I believe it was, uh, Dan Zelaney, um, met a woman who still had health issues because her mother tried to abort her with a coat hanger when she was young. And the coat hanger, the point, had actually passed through her body. Uh, it was a perfect example of the victims of, of back alley abortions. It's not just the women who hurt themselves. It's obviously the baby they were trying to kill or did successfully kill. So then we got to uh, we got to Ottawa. I'm skipping tons of details. Me and Cam could do a four-hour podcast just on this tour. It was crazy, and it really was awesome because it was the first time we were we were like taking the taking the strategy on the road, and we had so many testimonies of people changing their minds. We couldn't keep up with typing them out on the road. There were so many people changing their minds. We got coverage in almost every major paper across the country. And then we got to Ottawa. And we took a, a white child's coffin with 300 fetal models, each one representing one child killed uh, every day in Canada. And when, then we took it to 24 Sussex and we had a ceremony in front of Stephen Harper's house. Um, and the cops showed up and just sort of like wandered around a little bit by Rideau Hall there, but they didn't actually stop us. But I remember that being a really powerful moment, um, more so than I thought. We had planned it. So you kind of think that, well, when things go to according to plan, it's not going to be really moving or touching or whatever. Me and camera actually, the pallbearers, for the coffin. And I, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite something to do. I remember being much more affected by it than I thought I would be simply because we were so worried about getting the details right that you kind of forget what you're doing. But in the moment it was, it was quite something. And then we did our last talk in at the Greenbelt Baptist church, just across the border in Quebec and all the Montreal protesters who were rioting for free tuition or something drove up and absolutely swarmed the church. 
And that was uh, that was interesting. Nobody could get into the parking lot. And then our colleague, Carolyn Slingerland, started clearing the way by standing at the bumpers of the car and backing them into the parking lot. And then she was told that was dangerous and she said she didn't care. And then it was emphasized that it was dangerous and she was told to stop doing that. And so people had to like walk hundreds of yards to get into the church. And that's kind of how it ended. We flew out a couple of days later, but it was, it was probably the most intense stretch I've ever done like in a row. It wasn't like we've had, we've had crazier events since then, but not one after another, after another nonstop. So that's the short version of how the caravan went. And if anybody's ever interested in more, me and Cam can talk about the stuff for hours. Oh yeah. This was how I cut my teeth on the pro-life movement. I had done like minimal stuff here and there. I'd done a couple of Florida mission trips. And then I didn't even know that we were doing a caravan when I showed up for the internship. Uh, We get thrown into it at the end of May. It was incredible. Uh, getting to know these other people. And and like Jonathan said, stop after stop after stop. We'll never forget in in Vancouver. So we've got two of our big truth trucks, right? And and we're driving them around. And like Jonathan said, one of them got blockaded literally on the busiest corner of Vancouver. Robson and Berard, these these pro-abortion protesters think, you know what, we're gonna stop this truck in its tracks. And I remember being in the security car following the other truck. And so not only did our first truck get stopped right beside the CTV headquarters um, on this incredibly busy street corner. I mean, we couldn't have paid. Like, like we couldn't have sold the entire organization to get that kind of advertising space. But the look on their face as we drove the second truck past them slowly as we came around that corner and they were just so defeated. It was one of the best, um, best... Shadow moments of is the word you're looking for. Yes, yes, exactly. And and so absolutely incredible. And and so one thing that I, I'd be super interested in. So I, I was an intern on that trip. I didn't get to see a lot of the feedback, but like you said, this was really our our coming out party for this and the killing plan. That this was how we launched it. And we had, if memory serves me correctly, we had smaller audiences as we started out, and then they built and built and built. You mentioned the London and the um, the Ottawa, the one shortly on the other side of Quebec um, border, and how we had a couple hundred people come out to each of those. And what was the response when this national campaign, this national vision for how we would actually achieve an abortion-free Canada, what was the response from, I guess, uh, first of all, the pro-life? community but second of all from the pro-abortion community did they feel like they had to step up their game did they realize just how serious we were what was the response from launching this holistic and the killing campaign yeah so a few different reactions right the the abortion rights advocates were outraged um i remember uh the outrage was perfectly encapsulated by a speech Joyce Arthur of the abortion rights coalition of canada gave at the university of Kelowna a couple of months later and it was about uh, the history of abortion rights in Canada. And I got sent a video. Somebody had shot a video of the speech and uh, she, she, she started talking about the abortion caravan and we had been through there, of course, a few months ago. And somebody, a student stuck her hand up and said, um, which one? <laughs> and she was like the real one. And I, I was like, this is perfect. I still have that video on my computer. It's one of my favorite videos, just from a history nerd perspective. Um, like the idea of hijacking historical symbolism. Pro The pro-life community, I think was uh, cautiously, optimistic, right? At the time in 2012, a lot of pro-lifers were still not supportive of the use of abortion victim photography because they had been used by a few groups, right? Primarily show the truth, which would do a summer tour. Um, Rosemary Connell had been doing it for years. 
And of course, uh, her brother is actually Father Tom Lynch of Priest for Life. So he's obviously very supportive. Campaign Life Coalition, um, like they're a political arm, but they'd always been supportive of the use of abortion victim photography. It just wasn't their wheelhouse. But most, I would say, a lot of the people involved with local right to life groups and things like that were very dubious about this idea of using the images. And for them, the caravan kind of proved it because we we looked like bomb throwers because everybody was, you know, there was like, well, there was like a close to a riot at one point, right? Um, and what we had to do in the years following that was prove that the strategy worked. And again, this goes back to one of CCBR's strategic principles, which is show, not tell. And Cam, you can relate to this. Maybe you can, Peter, because I remember you you got involved first in 2014. You always undersell yourself, but you've been around for a lot longer than you like to give yourself credit for. Um, that initially, like a lot of people were instinctively skeptical of the use of abortion victim photography. And I noticed that it wasn't like an argument that we gave. It wasn't the book I wrote, Seeing is Believing. It was, it was the fact that we were producing a nonstop barrage of testimony newsletters, testimony videos. And at a certain point, the argument that abortion victim photography wasn't effective just wasn't tenable anymore. And the arguments kind of melted away. But I remember having to have these arguments all the time, but for like other pro-life groups who would who would actually condemn CCBR in the press when they got asked about our projects. And like that, I won't say like it was hurtful because I was way angrier than I was hurt. I was just like, what are you talking about, right? Like, we're, we're doing pro-life work. We're not going to criticize your bake sale, even though that didn't save any babies. So just maybe don't criticize the thing that we're doing, right? Like when it comes to pro-lifers, I believe that criticism should be internal. Internal means not the press. Um, but those arguments have largely melted away. We went from, um, you know, being an organization that very few right to life dinners uh, called upon to speak, except for they get Stephanie to do her rock star apologetics presentation once in a while. And now I think that between me, you, Micah, Rosendahl, our colleague, and a few of our other colleagues, I think we've done pretty much every right to life dinner in the country now, just in the last four years. Um, I've done, I've, I've done them in every province, not the territories, but every province and groups that used to think that, you know, what we were doing was terrible and divisive are now asking us to give presentations on the stories we have from our year, because they know that if they call CCBR, they're going to hear about changed minds and save lives because that's, that, that's our job. We've been constantly changing and improving ourselves. The way we use abortion victim photography is not the same as it was on the caravan. To give one example, we had 13 different postcard designs. In 2012, we do not use a single one of them anymore because we realized that although the abortion victim photography on the postcards were effective, uh, we had way too much text. The comparisons were often too obscure for people to understand. We tried to do way too much in a small space and our postcard designs have changed close to 10 times now. And that's based on polling. That's based on feedback. That's based on understanding how it works a lot better. So I would say the years, the years following, the, like immediately following the caravan, CCBR gained credibility in the movement primarily by showing, not telling. And instead of arguing with them about whether or not uh, abortion victim photography worked, we just showed them that it worked. And I would, I would go so far as to say that in the Canadian pro-life movement, using abortion victim photography is largely uncontroversial. Um, I don't think you'll find a single major pro-life group in the country who would say, uh, we think that CCBR does bad work, or we don't think that what they're doing is effective. Because it's not that's it's not 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 a logically tenable position to hold anymore, because all I have to do is send them a link to our you know page of testimony videos and say, like, are all these people lying? Or like look at these baby pictures. Did these babies not get saved from abortion, right? So at, at this point, with CCBR's track record, 
uh, and the success that we've been blessed with, their option is either to admit that it works uh, or to say that we're lying. And the third option is to say, I still think there's a better way, uh, in which case I look forward to hearing what that is. Uh, I don't believe that we have a moral imperative to use abortion victim photography. I simply think that based on all of the research and all of the evidence that we have thus far, it has proven to be the most effective strategy that we have at the time. It's totally conceivable, although unlikely, that a more effective strategy comes into play five, 10 years from now, at which case I I think that everybody at CCBR would be open-minded enough to sit down and say, okay, we're going to do this thing then. Um, this works better than abortion victim photography. So we're going to do that because CCBR's entire goal is fewer abortions nonstop. We want to save babies from abortion. That's, that's our entire job. So if something else makes that easier, then we'll switch to be completely honest. I get sick of these, looking at these pictures. I'd love to try something else, but it's what works best. So, and I think we have a responsibility to those supporting our work a responsibility to those in the movement and above all a responsibility to the babies who are at risk of being aborted to use the most effective tactics we have at our disposal based on the information that we have. And that information should always be evidence-based. I remember when I first joined the movement in 2014, people would often ask me, you know, if, if using images was actually the best thing we could do. And I would, I would always tell them about the story of how I got in the movement, which was, uh, someone came up to me and told me that the sign I was holding changed his mind and his girlfriend was 10 weeks pregnant and now he was going to show her the image um, of what abortion was due to his little boy or his little girl. I didn't even have a conversation with the guy. Um, he just saw the image and I would often tell people that story and many times people would be blown away because they had never heard such a story before. They hadn't really heard of someone who had changed their mind on abortion, someone who was either pro-choice uh, or someone who was thinking of getting an abortion uh, in the coming days and changed their mind. And that's that was one thing that... R- really did it for me in conversations. And the more I did activism, the more stories I had to tell people. And that's the same with you, Cam, and that's the same with uh, people across this organization. I just have a question, Jonathan, um, on abortion victim photography. So thinking about uh, what what the best strategy is that we can use, can we just assume that the work we're doing is effective and good just because we're using victim photography? Um, or is there a particular way we should use abortion victim photography? Well, so there's a couple of responses to that. One, you, you are never allowed to assume that what you're doing is effective. You have to measurably prove that what you're doing is effective. And that's what, one of the reasons why we've employed polling uh, several we've several different times in multiple different places in the country. We've, we've done polling where uh, we had our truck, we had postcards and we had choice chain and we pulled before and after, and then sent that polling off to a data expert to tell us what it showed. It was well over 30% of people who saw those images saw a significant shift on the abortion issue. Another set of polling, which is, is uh, the second, first or second appendix in the back of my book, seeing is believing, um, which we did in 2015 after dropping a million postcards, we, we pulled there to determine if people's mind shift ex- explicitly based on seeing abortion victim photography, just to make sure that there was no other factors contributing to any shift. And uh, over 65% of people who saw an image of, of an aborted baby felt more negatively about abortion because of what they saw. And so that number was was pretty incredible to me. Like my estimate was right around the the thirty eight to forty five percent marker because that's what our previous polling had shown, which was still the most effective strategy that we'd seen and that was available to us. So that was a really good success rate in my opinion. 
Um, and it, it's possible that our polling was so good in 2015 too, because in the area we were in, people were more susceptible to changing minds. So you always have to factor in where you're polling as well. But the, the lowest the lowest rate of change we've ever had is well over, it's still over 35%. So it's, it's pretty incredible. And that's what we use to determine whether or not we're successful. The polling didn't surprise us because we had all these anecdotes, right? We have thousands of stories of people who have changed their minds. The polling was important to ensure that those anecdotes were actually data points on a trend that showed the people we were reaching were moving in a more pro-life direction and as a result having fewer abortions. Those are the last numbers that we've been desperately trying to get our hands on for five years for anybody interested. It's right now it is impossible to get accurate abortion stats in this country. I, I, I would really love to have accurate stats. Um, I've been talking to Pat Maloney, who many of you may recognize as somebody who actually sued the government to get stats, still didn't manage to get accurate statistics. So that's the last data set that I, that I would really like to look at. But we've been working with uh, anecdotes, with data and with trends and all of the evidence points towards a shift. If you knock 20 points off of our polling, let's say that the professor we sent this, this to in the States is, is totally off a rocker and terrible, which isn't true, but let's say it was, you could knock 20 points off our polling and we're still utilizing the most effective strategy in the country, period. So even if our stats are wildly optimistic, what we're like, our impact is still incredible, full stop. Um, so I would, I would just, I would just uh, make that point off the gate. And, and one thing that I think is so incredible about that is that I'm, I'm sure that some people may at times look at our testimonies and and maybe try to read into it a pro-lifer's interpretation of like oh well i had this conversation i really felt like they had changed their opinion on this which really isn't the case from the conversations that i've had and the interns and staff members that i've worked with but i i find this polling so incredible because there's people who are willing to say yeah i, I feel worse about abortion now than it did before. Like these, these are people who are probably more inclined to resist change than to admit change, right? Like people don't like to admit that they were changed. People don't like to admit that they were maybe wrong in the first place. And yet, like you said, over 65% and well under 10%. This is the other fascinating number that I, I love talking about on this because you mentioned earlier that there's some people who would suggest that, oh, well, it actually does more harm than good. There, There's these people who... They, you know, you show abortion victim photography and you're just fueling the abortion movement because people hate you. They hate the pro-life movement and they're more likely to get involved with the abortion movement. And yet less than 10% of people had the, the courage or the, the gust or whatever to say, to even suggest, oh, I'm not going to be more active or I, I feel more positive towards abortion. And so, yeah, you're going to have those people that, I mean, if they rung up Joyce Arthur, like you said, from the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada or something like that. Sure, maybe they'll say that for the sake of statistics, but these are people who are willing to admit, yes, I'm feeling more negatively about this issue now than I was before. One other thing I'll say about those stats, because a lot of people ask me this after presentations, is that especially for the 2015 data set, the, the data set that was over 65% uh, feeling more negatively about abortion, we pulled that six months after delivering the literature. And we did that explicitly so that it wouldn't be like a, an instant reaction, you know, a week after seeing this horrible picture, but like they'd been given time to percolate on it, to think about it a lot. And that was the number six months later. So often people ask, well, do the, the, the changes in opinion that you guys uh, facilitate, are, are they long lasting? Now, nobody can answer that question definitively. So I'm basically answering with what I have, but I'm, I am just openly sharing the evidence we have for the effectiveness 
Uh, I'm not making any statements as to things that we can't prove or information we can't obtain. Uh, but we we have taken that into account and we have, we pulled people a, a good six months after it was done to ensure that we had maximum accuracy and and some level of longevity. Jonathan, you mentioned a little bit earlier that when you first saw a video of an abortion happening, uh, an abortion taking apart uh, limb by limb a preborn child, that's what really got you to feel convicted to join the movement. Um, so we're talking about how abortion victim photography is effective in changing the minds of people that we have conversations with on the streets, people who support abortion uh, across this country. Have you seen other pro-lifers um, be affected by abortion victim photography in the same way that you were when you first joined the movement? You know, that's such an interesting question because one of the reasons I think that I was confident early on uh, that abortion victim photography had an impact on people is because of the impact it had on me. And I realized as the years went on that like my story was super normal and super boring. Like half of the pro-life movement's leadership exists because people had an experience exactly like mine. So Troy Newman of Operation Rescue saw an abor- a picture of an abortion. Somebody showed it to him on his honeymoon. Uh, came back from his honeymoon, joined Operation uh, Rescue, started getting arrested outside abortion clinics. Mark Harrington, uh, of, who now runs Created Equal, got involved after seeing a picture of an aborted baby. Scott Klusendorf, who runs Life Training Institute, got involved after seeing a photograph of an aborted baby. Uh, right around the world, actually, like international leaders, most of them were exposed to abortion at some point, And as a result of seeing those photographs, felt compelled to do something about what they saw. So the same is true for Lila Rose of Live Action, who saw an aborted baby picture, got involved. David Delight in Center for Medical Progress, same thing. Saw a picture of an aborted baby, got involved. Uh, Joe Scheidler, whose nickname is the godfather of direct pro-life action and wrote a memoir called Racketeer for Life. I think he's like one of the most senior members of, of pro-life leadership now. He's in his 90s. He marched uh, He marched on Selma with Dr. King in the 60s. Uh, he got involved uh, in the pro-life movement after seeing a photograph of a garbage bag full of aborted babies. It was actually taken in a Toronto hospital because the faces of one of those babies reminded him of his son, Eric, who now runs pro-life action league in Chicago. Uh, Neve Ubrain, um, who's one of the... the primary leaders of the Irish pro-life movement, uh, a story that I detail in my latest book, Patriots, got involved seeing a photograph of an aborted baby. And she says most of the people she knows did as well. So the pro-life movement wouldn't exist in its current form, if at all, if people hadn't been motivated to do something about abortion by seeing what abortion is, right? It's not like we all grow up just assuming there's no injustice in the world and the bad things don't happen to people, but seeing what abortion does to the body of a child shocks you into the realization that this kind of cruelty should not be accepted in any nation that refers to itself as civilized. And those images have driven people to dedicate their entire lives to putting a stop to it. Because again, as Greg Cunningham said, when you see abortion, abortion protests itself. And Dr. Monica Miller, she put it once really powerfully, um, talking about how when you see those images, you realize that those babies not only had a right to life, but a right to our defense. And the pro-life movement in its current form exists because seeing those images brought them to that realization. Mm -hmm. And and one thing that I think goes along with that, you you mentioned earlier that these are such an effective tool. And and I I often share with people who are a little bit hesitant on the personally using abortion victim photography. This analogy, I I don't remember who said it to me. It might have been Jojo way back when about how abortion victim photography is kind of like power tools. That if you don't know what you're doing, you can do a lot of damage with them. If you do know what you're doing, if you've gotten the proper training, um, then you can be incredibly effective. You can get a lot of work done really effectively, really efficiently. And that's why 
at CCBR, we don't just throw anybody out on the street, right? We have a very thorough training program. We have very thorough expectations, very high standards for our team members, whether staff or interns or volunteers. We make sure that everyone who uses these images is using them appropriately, engaging our focus audience, those who are old enough to personally have an abortion themselves or influence others to have abortions, that sort of thing. Before we dive into maybe a couple of frequently asked questions, Peter, maybe we can talk about a few of the things that, that still come up time and again, whether from abortion advocates or from pro-lifers. Um, if you if you were given a presentation right now to a bunch of maybe a youth group or a young adults group or something, and they were thinking about implementing abortion victim photography as one of their main kind of methods of pro-life activism, and they were a little bit on the fence. Is there like one little nugget? I know that we've talked through a lot of different lines, a lot of really powerful stats or quotes. How would you encourage them? If, if they were on the fence and, and almost at that breaking point of, you know what, I, I'm almost willing to go out there, but I'm still worried that maybe this isn't quite the right thing for me. Maybe this is good for other people, but not for me, that sort of thing. What would kind of be your, your final cap it off kind of thing for, for getting them involved? So in terms of um, what if it's not for me, like the best, the final argument I use that I find resonates the most with people, which is an argument I developed at CCBR with our research is when people say, well, if imagery works, why don't we just use imagery of, of babies in the womb? And I point out uh, that you know, imagery of beautiful, healthy, happy babies respond to a question that nobody's asking. And one of the things that's important to point out is that when you show what, what the problem in our culture is, is that there's a cognitive dissonance between what we instinctively and intellectually know about the baby in the womb and what we ideologically, culturally believe about abortion. So a cognitive dissonance, for those who don't know the terminology, is just the ability to hold two competing but incompatible ideas in the same skull without feeling the need to reconcile them. But everybody already knows that the baby in the womb is a baby, right? It's an instinctive thing, right? It's why nobody asks people who say they're expecting what they're expecting. Everybody knows it's a baby, right? Nobody, uh, nobody looks at a sonogram and asks somebody what they're having unless they're referring to the gender of the baby. And so everybody knows, everybody's seen a sonogram, everybody's seen an ultrasound, everybody already knows that. However, they still they manage to support abortion without connecting it to what they know about the baby in the womb. You show them a picture of a baby in the womb and it will confirm what they already know without challenging what they believe. You show them a photograph of an aborted baby and suddenly the wall between those two things comes down and they're forced to reconcile what they know with what they believe. That's why they often respond badly, right? That's why people will actually re react angrily sometimes when they see these images, because when you've been in a dark room for a long time and somebody flips the light on, your eyes hurt. So that's, that's the strategic argument that I find really pushes people along because the last argument I get when they're sold, okay, imagery is effective, blah, blah, blah. Then they'll be like, well, maybe just not your imagery because it's really ugly. And yes, it is ugly. It's ugly because abortion is ugly. And so my final encouragement to people, and I, I'm sure Cam uh, <laughs> remembers some of the more unorthodox recruitment tactics we used to use back in the day in 2011, 2012, when we didn't have all that many volunteers, which was just straight up guilting people. But uh, to be more finessed about the whole thing, it's just to point out, look, you know what abortion is. You care about babies in the womb. That's why you're grappling with this to begin with. Tomorrow, the abortion clinic is, is going to open and people are going to head in. 300 babies are going to die and you have the power to do something very simple, very simple. 
uh, to, to stop it. Something we've proven is effective. If you're wondering it's for you, why not? Why, why isn't it for you? And if you think it feels bad to have people, you know, glare at you or shout at you for doing something unpopular, imagine what it feels like to have your legs ripped off by forceps. Yeah, that's powerful. So yeah, let's dive into a few of the frequently asked questions. Um, so, some of the questions people really wrestle with and, and, and some not so much, but I think I'll dive into the one that I hear a lot when I'm on the streets. Um, for those of you who don't know, we at CCBR take these images. We have various projects uh, and we that we take the images to the streets, whether it's going door to door, whether uh, with, with pro-life literature, like postcards that Jonathan mentioned earlier, whether it's uh, having signs that we stand outside of universities and colleges um, and, and a number of other projects. Now, inevitably, when we're in the general public, we're going to be interacting with everyone uh, of all ages. So what about the children? I, I mean, isn't it, isn't it wrong to show the children walking past us these images? Um, or, or is it okay? How would you respond to that if someone asks you why you should be allowed to show these images to little children? So there's two kinds of people who ask this question. Uh, there's the very disingenuous people who are using their kids as a human shield to avoid talking about how the fact that they support killing other children. I can give you one example. I remember uh, a dad phoning me in 2015 after getting one of our postcards and screaming and swearing and yelling at me. Um, and then uh, saying, my kid is upset. She's hysterical right now. She's so upset. Um, and then I hear in the background a voice saying, well, who are you talking to daddy from a kid who was way calmer than the dad. Um, so there's those folks who are just using their kids as an excuse to get mad at pro-life activists. Uh, then there's those who are genuinely worried about it and deserve a very reasonable and, and rational response. So to pro-lifers uncomfortable with it, I would say a few things. The first is that uh, show the truth actually did a study on how kids react uh, to seeing abortion victim photography over years, I believe it was over 15 years of doing this activism and recording reactions. And now having done this for, for uh, roughly 10 years myself, I agree with every one of their conclusions. They noted that kids always react how the parent reacts because what kids need is to feel safe, right? We know kids are going to see graphic imagery of some sort out in public, period, full stop, from the magazine covers in the grocery store to, you know, the billboards that the city of Calgary once put up of somebody's face smashed through a windshield with jagged chunks of glass sticking out of the guy's head to tell you to wear your seatbelt, right? We accept the fact that in the public square, kids are going to see some graphic things. So then the question is, well, how are the kids going to respond to those things? And the answer to that is it's going to totally depend on how their parents respond. So in all my years of seeing thousands of people walk past signs, the only time I've ever seen a child distraught is when her dad was leaning into one of our volunteers' faces and screaming F-bombs like it was his day job. She was mad because daddy was acting erratically and yelling and screaming, uh, she, not because of the pictures, right? Because pictures can be contextualized and explained to kids very easily. The, the, the people get angry because they can't explain the pictures, of course, uh, have the awkward thing where what are they supposed to say to their kid, right? Well, it's that's a, a dead baby. Um, and I agree with doing that, but don't worry, you made it. Um, like pro-choice parents don't have a good way of explaining abortion to their kids. For pro-life parents, it's that simple. It's just explaining to them and making them feel safe and making them aware of the fact uh, that they are safe, that, you know, babies get hurt by some people, but that the people showing the signs want to stop that. I'll give you a, a personal example. When my little sister was, I think it was her sixth birthday party or whatever. And anyways, I was in university and I was driving uh, her and her friends uh, back to their kids' houses because my Honda Civic was cooler than mom's van. 
or something like that. Anyways, there's all, I had a, I had a, like a whole car full of little girls and then a bunch of, uh, I forgot that I had all these choice chain pamphlets bundled on the floor of my car that I've been using in, in Vancouver. Uh, and I was driving down the highway and I hear this like little voice in the back going, ew, what's this? And it's one of my little sister's friends who's like six years old, like opening an abortion pamphlet, looking at a picture of an aborted baby. And I'm like, oh, great, right? Like I'm going to drop this kid off now in like 10 minutes and explain to her mom why she got an abortion postcard in her party bag. Like I was, I was genuinely worried about this. And I hear my little sister in the back who never been exposed to the images intentionally. Whenever I showed my parents the stuff, I made sure she wasn't in the room, blah, blah, blah. And uh, she just turns over and says, oh, some, some people kill babies, but my brother doesn't like that. So he's trying to stop it. And the little girl said, oh, dropped the postcard. That was it. Never heard anything else. So I would basically say uh, that well, pro-choice parents are angry because they can't properly explain to their kids what the images are. We remember, remember on the caravan cam in Thunder Bay, we had that guy lose his mind because his kid actually asked who broke the baby. He was furious because he didn't know how to explain that to her. Then there's the parents who are genuinely worried about their kids. And I hope that that explanation serves to assure them that their child will not be traumatized or hurt if a, they're just made to feel safe and a very reasonable conversation uh, is had with them. And so I, I think that should, should come for people. The, the last thing I would say is something that Stephanie Gray always said, and it's a bit sharper, a bit edgier. She would say, you know, if, if a three-year-old was getting kicked to death in the street and you came across it with one of your kids, would you be angrier that that was happening and that your kids are angrier that your kids saw it or angrier that it was happening? Uh, and I think that's also very relevant, right? Is at the end of the day, um, their children are safe. 300 kids every day in Canada aren't. And so that's un it's unfortunate that we have to show the public what those images look like. But at the end of the day, if you're angry that we have to show it, you should be more angrier that it's happening. And that's the society that, that we're growing up in right now. Yeah, exactly. And, and two things that I'll add on that, that, that I really think should be common knowledge, but for whatever reason or not. And then one of them is coming to a head in Calgary here, that Calgary City Council and their infinite wisdom or lack thereof is deciding they're going to try to pass bubble zones around every school in Calgary because they don't want people talking about abortion. They don't, they don't want anyone to be becoming pro-life. They don't want anyone rejecting that pro-abortion worldview that the public school system is pumping down everybody's throat. And they're, they're acting as though, and, and many people have this notion that we're setting up our choice gene signs outside of kindergartens and playgrounds and daycares and, and water parks. And, and obviously it makes no sense for us to go there, right? We're very strategic in where we set up our displays to the point where the vast majority of our time is spent at senior high schools, universities, colleges, downtown busy, like business thoroughfares, that sort of thing. Very few kids are actually coming by in the first place. And second of all, to your point as well, uh, one thing that, so I, I do a lot of the callbacks, uh, which is probably the most exhilarating job that we have at CCBR. Um, all of our postcards, Jonathan mentioned in 2015, we dropped off a million postcards. Every one of them has a phone number on the back and they get to leave us a, a kind and loving message on our message machine that I'm, I get to follow up with. And time after time, I was basically forced to share with people, you know, we have a choice right now. We're doing all that we can to make sure that we're reaching our target audience. But if we have to choose between the life of a born child, uh, sorry, the life of a preborn child and the emotions of a born child, if we're forced to make that decision, one or the other, do we care more about the feelings of our born children or about the lives of our preborn children? I think that's something we have to keep in mind as well. That this is a, a decision that we have to make time and again. Are we not going to do something that is proven 
to be effective, proven to be life-saving because we care more about the emotions of a very, very small number of children that are ever going to encounter our images, or are we going to do it because we care so passionately and desperately about those children who are getting killed, like Jonathan said, day after day after day in Canadian abortion facilities? Yeah, basically, uh, to summarize that point, I would say that I, I find that argument valid if abortion isn't happening. That's right. So uh, one more question. Um, you know, we're pro-life. We, we care about the people in front of us. We care about, uh, you know, everyone that we interact with. But we know people who have had miscarriages or abortions in the past. And uh, there is we have no doubt that the people that when we talk to people on the streets, we are talking to people who have had abortions, who have had miscarriages um, or there are people who we don't talk to, but walk by and see our images uh, or see our images as we drop them off at their front door. Uh, who have had abortions or miscarriages. W- would you say that showing these images hurts women uh, who have had abortions or who have experienced the tragedy of a miscarriage? Yeah, no. So the interesting thing about the post-abortive question is I've actually heard a lot of pro-lifers say that, like, what about making post-abortive women feel bad? And, I, and I'll admit that I genuinely don't understand the logic behind that. I understand the, the logic behind the objection to what if my kids see it, I don't want them to see something like that. I, I get that. I don't get the post-abortive women question for a couple of reasons. The first of which is that the post-abortive are pre-aborted. All the data tells us that once a woman has had one abortion, she is far more likely to have more. So when they say, what if post-abortive women see them? I'm like, well, then I'm doing my job. We want them to see these images. We want to show them what abortion is to ensure that they don't make that choice a second time. I could give you personal examples of people that I know who have said that they had an abortion, but they did not abort their other children because they were shown in that interim period before their first child was aborted and their second child was born, what abortion actually was. Their children are alive because they saw abortion victim photography. So the first thing is the post-abortive or pre-abortive, they are one of our prime target audiences because they are one of the primarily vulnerable groups to the abortion industry. The second thing I would say is that so many people become post-abortive because we don't get to them in time. That was my very first experience at at Florida Gap, as I mentioned, back in 2010. First conversation I had was with a a girl. I was all like prepped to argue about abortion. I had like had like hours of apologetics. I was quite certain that, you know, I, I knew what I was doing. And I asked her what she thought about the images behind us. And she actually said, well, I had an abortion a couple of weeks ago. And I had no idea what to say. And I was just, I still remember that sort of sick feeling of what do I say next? Because I wasn't prepared to, to respond to that. Um, for those of you interested in doing CCBR training, we will now teach you how to respond to that. But at the time, I didn't know how to respond to that. And I, so I just asked her, what do you think of, of my pictures? And, and, and she said, well, why didn't anybody show me that before? Um, and I realized that so, so many women have abortions because nobody shows what shows them what abortion looks like in time. And so many women have second abortions because nobody shows them a picture in time. So I I, I just reject the argument entirely uh, that that post-abortive women might be hurt. The second thing is there's a difference between triggers and traumas. A lot of people will say, well, um, you know, you're traumatizing women with, with pictures. Well, no, abortion was a trauma. And if the images trigger that trauma, it's because they still need to have healing which is why CCBR has cards. We can refer anybody on the streets to post-abortion help and counseling if they need it. That first girl I actually talked to sought help and healing to deal with the abortion she'd had. She ended up tattooing the baby's name 
across across her stomach. And so we're also there to show post-abortive women what they've been through so that they can heal from the trauma of having gone through that abortion because grief is a natural response to having lost a child. And the abortion industry lies to women and says, you have nothing to grieve. So they're like, well, why does my life feel so out of kilter? Like, why, like, why am I making bad decisions? We've heard that so many times that when they finally see what abortion is, they're like, that's what's wrong, right? Like I'm feeling grief, I'm feeling lost, but I've, I'm told by the abortion industry and people like Joyce Arthur and, and the abortion activists that, well, like, why would you grieve, right? It was a, cr- a clump of cells. It was like cleaning your teeth. You know, you got your, you know, your uterus vacuumed out at the clinic, it took 20 minutes. What's the big deal? Um, and our images allow people to understand that grief and loss are a logical response to what they have been through. So I think that's really important as well. We've worked with with, with post-abortive women on our projects. We've partnered with Silent No More Awareness Campaign, where you've got people like Angelina Steenstra, who have actually come out on the streets with us and just held a sign that said, I regret my abortion. There was a woman who'd had an abortion who was with us on that very first day on that new abortion caravan on the front steps of the art gallery, a sign that said, I've had my abortion. Uh, and she wanted to share her experience uh, about abortion with people. So that's a response to that. In terms of the miscarriage question, it's more difficult, but I would say one thing is the people who feel triggered by seeing uh, an image of an aborted baby. And I'm always surprised that the, the press thinks this is a gotcha question, right? Like, well, you guys are clearly terrible because you don't care if women who've had a miscarriage get triggered. I'm like, what you are saying inherently is that the picture of the aborted baby is the picture of a baby. Because you're saying that the woman who feels this great loss during miscarriage identifies the aborted baby as the baby that she lost, and that's where the the triggering comes from. So I always find that argument as sort of an instinctive, implicit admission of our position that that what abortion does is ends the life of a developing human being. And I've talked to people um, quite a few times. I'm sure, Cam, you and your callbacks have talked to many people on the same subject. And one of the things I point out is your baby was wanted and loved. And the reason we have to show these pictures to people is because the babies on these pictures were not wanted and loved. And people need to see these babies so these babies no longer have to uh, be murdered, be killed in this way. Um, And so I get that it's going to be triggering. It's going to be difficult. The world is filled with triggering and difficult things. But at the end of the day, showing these images is necessary because until every baby is as loved and wanted as that miscarried child was, we are unfortunately compelled to continue doing this work. That's right. Jonathan, you wrote a book uh, that I mentioned earlier, Seeing is Believing Why Our Culture Must Come Face-to-Face with Abortion. Could you uh, just briefly tell us about that book and where we could find it? So you can find it at thebridgehead.ca under the shop tab. Um, Basically, that book was my attempt to compile all of CCBR's research, uh, all of the research done by Greg Cunningham, Scott Klusendorf. Like there's been a lot of leaders who have all contributed to this sort of ongoing discussion about how to most effectively use abortion victim photography. So based on CCBR's research, polling data, thousands of hours on the streets, as well as I took Greg Cunningham's historical research and I really expanded it. And then I did one uh, totally new area of research. Monica Miller actually wrote the foreword and she, uh, I was very pleased to discover when she read the book that she hadn't even uh, been aware of that area, which is the impact of abortion imagery on those who work in abortion clinics. Because people will often ask like, well, um, if, if abortion victim photography is, is so effective, then why are people still working in abortion clinics? They're looking at the actual bodies. Well, um, you, I have a whole chapter on that, which answers that question. And it turns out that they're not doing that great after seeing those horrible things day in, day out. And most of them are struggling with serious issues. Um, so that book basically is the one-stop shop for what I think right now is the most effective educational strategy that we have at our disposal. 
Uh, and again, if, if anybody ever comes to me with a better one, we'll either amend ours or we'll, or, or we'll swap it out. But I don't think that uh, that's likely to happen. And seeing as believing compiles all the reasons why. So we even have a chapter just called Frequently Asked Questions that go through a lot of the things that we've just discussed. And uh, it's I, I've been very pleased with how the book's been reviewed. Uh, Father Frank Pavone and Priest for Life uses the book. A bunch of pro-life organizations use the book as part of their training. Uh, even the president of Malta apparently read the book after getting it from a Maltese pro-lifer and said he liked it. So that was pretty neat to hear. Um, so if you're interested in pro-life strategy, it's a very, very interesting book. It's not as interesting as, as, as say, my sister uh, Justina Van Manen's book, Stuck, which is apologetics. But for, for strategy junkies, I do think that this book is, is a great place for you to start. That's right. And I would recommend it as well. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We are so pleased uh, that you took the time to be with us to share a little bit about the strategy of CCBR and what we've been doing uh, over the last decade. Uh, so thank you so much for you your bet. work. Hopefully we'll have you on the show again. Anytime. Perfect. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, my name is Peter Boss, the host of the show. I'm with Cameron Cote, the co-host and the expert of the show. Cam, any final words? I All I would say is check out Jonathan's other content. Thebridgehead.ca, incredible blog. You get not only written content that is fantastic, uh, but you also, you, the Van Maren show, I believe, Van Maren show, he also does the Culture War show, uh, which is fantastic. The, the guy really brings together the pro-life, the, the Christian worldview kind of content that you need to know so often I talk to people who bemoan the fact that the media in our contemporary day and age is so slanted in the other direction. So often we only hear about the bad news or the stuff that is threatening the Christian worldview, the pro-life worldview, that kind of thing. And people really want to hear what is going on, what is a, a rational take on what is actually happening in our world. Jonathan puts that together. I often, often, often put stuff towards, um, put people towards Jonathan's content. So check him out, thebridgehead.ca. Check out his books. He's got a couple more on there that I would definitely encourage you to check out. And if you have questions, either for Peter and I regarding any of the content that we've covered in any of the past episodes or for Jonathan, hit us up. Send a message to theprolifeguys.com. We got a contact us page on there, and I'm sure that we can we can connect up and follow up on any questions you might have. And like we've said in the past, we're doing this podcast for you. So if there are arguments that you're really not sure how to navigate through, if if there are justifications for abortion that you don't know how to to winsomely manage when you're in conversations, do let us know. Contact us at theprolifeguys.com, not theprolifeguys.com at www.prolifeguys.com. Find us on Facebook, The Pro-Life Guys, or on Instagram. Send us a message through any of those platforms. And check out if uh, there are groups in your community who are doing this type of work, who are going out on the streets, who are trying to, to defend and to protect preborn children from the horror of abortion and get involved. If you want to know a little bit more, you can find, uh, uh, find community groups at endthekilling.ca. So go to endthekilling.ca. You can sign up in the Take Action tab and we'll get back to you on what sort of groups are doing activism in your community. Don't forget to check out thebridgehead.ca slash backslash shop to find Jonathan's book, Seeing is Believing, Why Our Culture Must Face the Victims of Abortion. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are, are so grateful that you've taken the time to listen to this episode. We're so grateful that you are committed to ending the killing of preborn children in Canada, or if you're not in Canada, in whatever country it is that you're in. So thank you so much. And we hope to see you again on the next episode. 
Thanks so much and take care, everyone.